Welcome to the first episode of Real Human Conversations. I'm your host, Jonathan Daniel, and my guest today is Terry Weaver. Terry is the Director of Marketing and Development at Reflective Media, and is also the author of four books, the most recent of which releases this weekend. He also stars in a leading role in the local streaming production, Breaking Strongholds, and was kind enough to be my first guest on this show. So please enjoy a meandering conversation between myself and Terry Weaver. Thanks for being here, man. Yeah, happy to be. Thanks for inviting me. Yeah, um, we've worked together on uh, at least one project before. A couple. Yeah, a couple of projects mm -hmm. now, and we've got some ongoing projects, but I have never really gotten a chance just to hear your story um, from the beginning, you know, just yeah. kind of how you ended up where you are doing what you do. Yeah. Sounds good. Let's start in the Mountain View Trailer Park. Mountain View Trailer Park. All right, tell me more. 415 Mountain View Trailer Park. And there was a beautiful mountain view from this trailer park, except that it was in a ghetto. Mm -hmm. And that's pretty much the way San Bernardino is. San Bernardino, California, that's where I grew up. Um, spent a lot of my childhood there. And, uh, you know, it was rough. My, my, my parents split up early. Mm. Um, just a chaotic childhood, man. And uh, as soon as I could, I left home. And I was about 16 years old. I had a plan of um, moving to the beach and basically being a panhandler or searching for, you know, uh, lost coins and jewelry in the sand. And I told this to one of my good buddies on the wrestling team. His name's Brian. And he said, you know, <laughs> he said, uh, that plan stinks. <laughs> so why don't, you, uh, why don't you come live with me? And I thought, oh, man. You know, you want me to run away from home and live in the same city? There's no way. I need to get as far away as possible. So I was going to move from San Bernardino to Newport, and at least that's a couple-hour drive. Mm -hmm. But uh, he, he eventually convinced me into packing a little bit of my clothes in my backpack every day, and then we would transfer that into his truck, and then he would take that back to his house. Okay. And so finally, when we got enough, uh, I decided, okay, today's the day, and I, I left with him. And um, man, that's when the craziness started. Just parents up and left home, didn't talk yeah. to your parents? Or yeah, anything? yeah. Wow. Uh, they came looking for me. They had the cops chasing after me. And I would pretty much bounce from house to house to try to evade them. And so wow. I had a couple buddies that I would uh, stay with and one lady that I worked with. And I think eventually they gave up and realized that uh, I wasn't coming home. Hmm. There was like come one, one last holdout. And now let me just preface all of this with I'm, I have a good relationship with my parents, but it took a long time to get there. But uh, one day I was in school. I decided to go back to school after everything calmed down. I mm -hmm. thought they were done chasing me. And my dad ended up showing up at the high school, called me out of class. He was at the front of the high school. There's these big metal gates. And I remember him saying, uh, Terry, you're coming home with me. And I remember... That day was when I stood up to him and I said, I'm not coming home with you. And mm -hmm. I just took off running. And uh, they tried to chase me, but I eventually got away. And from that point, for about six months, I was kind of bouncing around with friends. I finally contacted my mom. My mom was not in the picture at that time. She had done some time in prison. Okay. So we reconnected with her. That's a long story. But I lived with her until I left for the military. And I knew that I needed to get away from all of this chaos. Like, I didn't have any options, man. Mm -hmm. um, so I had to get away from this chaos. And the military was that for me. 
Um, I joined when I was 17, had my 18th birthday in Navy boot camp, and then spent my 21st birthday in Kuwait preparing to go into Iraq. Oh, wow. Uh, so the Navy corpsman is a, is a rate in the Navy, mm -hmm. and we're basically like medics on the front lines uh, with either the Navy or the Marines, and I got chosen to go with the Marines. Okay. So I ran around with those guys uh, for my five years in the Navy. Wow. Great experience. So you were in from, uh, I think I remember looking this up, from 99 to 2004? Yeah, that's right. Okay, so yeah. you were you were in during the thick of things. Yeah, I remember the Twin Towers being bombed. I was at work at the Naval Hospital Camp Pendleton, and mm -hmm. I knew right away, man. Once we found out that this was an attack, mm -hmm. we knew we were going. Yeah. We knew it was just a matter of time. So uh, there was probably about, so that was 9-11, um, probably about eight months until we were over in Kuwait, building up to go into Iraq. Mm -hmm. What was that feeling like? Um, you know, like you said, seeing the Twin Towers go down, knowing that you were going to be going over there. Was that fear, tension, excitement? I'm not sure if I could pinpoint the emotions back then, mm -hmm. but I think what had happened in me was... I knew we were going to war. I knew there was going to be a lot of chaos. Mm -hmm. So I kind of lived it up. Like I partied. Mm. And I don't think I processed everything. I think it was like, okay, man, I got to leave my family. And um, at that time I had a daughter and a relationship that had blown up, but I was leaving them. Mm -hmm. And I thought, <clears throat> I may never come back. So it's time to live it up. Totally bad processing, but that's the way I processed it. Yeah, well, I mean, at that age, you kind of aren't really thinking through things as clearly as maybe you are now. That's right. Um, yeah. So, Corman, was that something, was that a rating that you chose, or was that chosen for you? Uh, what yeah. was the thinking behind that? I was fortunate. Um, I wanted to become a Corman. Mm -hmm. There was an open billet. Uh, um, so I tested high enough on the ASVAB to go to school, did mm -hmm. good at school. After that initial schooling, I went to field med service school mm -hmm. where you be basically learn the, the field medicine aspect of, of a corpsman. Okay. So you can become qualified to do tours with the Marines. Mm -hmm. So, yeah, chose that rate. I wanted to be in the medical field, and I thought I wanted to be a doctor. But mm -hmm. after my time in the military, I knew that wasn't my, my path. Really? What was it about your time in the military as a corpsman that made you not want to go into the medical field after you left the military? Well, I think it had a lot to do with some of the surgeons that I served with mm -hmm. and probably one of the docs that I served with. But these surgeons were, I mean, they got called in all the time. They didn't have a life. Mm -hmm. um, so they worked a lot. And I'm a worker, but I, I don't think I wanted to step into that. Right. I mean, you go to medical school, you spend eight, you know, let's just call it eight years. It's much more than that. Uh, especially if you want to become a surgeon, but um, you invest all that time, there's really not a lot of going back that happens. You kind mm -hmm. of commit for the rest of your life to be in that field, to kind of, that, that field owns you. Right. Um, so I wasn't ready for that. I, I felt like I developed like an entrepreneurial nature that I wanted to start something and grow it and make something unique, mm -hmm. create something. So I thought that um, a better field would be business, entrepreneurship, something like that. I made that decision probably year three in the military. Okay. Yeah, I imagine as a corpsman, that's 
a pretty stressful job because you're, I would imagine you're seeing kind of the worst of things because you only, your job involves when people are hurt, when people, right. you know, have potentially the worst day of their lives and you're right there for that constantly. Yeah, and it wasn't all bad. I mean, we got the the typical patient coming in complaining over a sore foot or you mm. know a busted arm or something like that. But yeah, you don't you don't get the people walking in that are happy. They're coming in because they're broken and they need some help. Mm -hmm. So, and that's great for somebody that has the service mentality. Right. And I definitely did. I just didn't see that as a good fit for me. Right. Not not yeah. for a long term yeah. career. So, two thousand four, you um, you leave the navy. What happened then? Yeah, 2004, from about 2004 to about 2008, I really made a mess of my life. Mm -hmm. and, and I don't think I understood quite what was going on internally, but uh, when I came back from my deployment, got out of the military, my, my relationship had blown up, and I just had a lot of internal chaos going on. So I kind of just, I, I, I call it fumbling in mm -hmm. life for about four or five years. Okay. A lot of drinking, a lot of partying, a lot of confusion. I tried to go to school, um, but I think uh, when I decided to move from California to Texas, mm -hmm. uh, got accepted to Texas A&M, there was a bit of a shift there. And okay. I thought, okay, I gotta get things together. I'm in a school that I wanted to go to, got in a good program, mm -hmm. fortunately. And so there was a shift there. So you went to A&M, what, what program did you end up in? I uh, went to the business school there, Mays Business okay. School. Mm -hmm. And um, got through that, went in, got a high paying sales job. It was great. And then I felt like after about four or five years of that, mm -hmm. that I was ready to do something more meaningful. So the good thing about the military, and this is like a common thing that happens in the military. Mm -hmm. You get it in the military, especially if you go to war, you get to become a part of something much bigger than yourself. And there is this like high purpose value on your life. You're a part of this mission. There's all this camaraderie. There's a brotherhood. And a lot of times, and I think that happened partially in my life, is you get out of the military and you kind of lose all that. Mm -hmm. And you go, what's my purpose now? Right. You know, that's very common. Um, so when I went into business, I never really had that purposeful mentality. I never really got that back from when I was in the military. So uh, I got an offer to go on church staff at a, a mega church, took that. I was a volunteer mm -hmm. coordinator, pastor for the volunteer teams and did that for a couple of years. Then I got out, then I left there, started a nonprofit that focused on connecting veterans, entrepreneurs and leaders, mm -hmm. wrote a couple books and then I was presented with this unique opportunity to audition for a lead acting role in a television series that we're in current production for uh, called Breaking Strongholds. So that's mm -hmm. kind of takes us to current day. Obviously, that's a very quick snapshot. But yeah, you just kind of rolled right over it. But just you wrote a couple books. Yeah, um, yeah, yeah. What's what's the story on that? Uh, how did you go from you know being in the Navy with the Marines over? in Iraq to, you know, high paying sales job to author. Like what was kind of that transition there that got you thinking, I want to write a book? Cause that's a, that's a big undertaking. The amount of work that's involved, that's not just something you do casually. Right. So um, what prompted you to pursue that? I think it was a couple things. One of them was a biography that I read from Andrew Carnegie. Okay. You know, Andrew Carnegie, mm -hmm. he's a, uh, 
pretty famous industrialist. I think he was the second or third wealthiest person in, in the world at one point. And he was a true rags to riches story. Right. So there was a, uh, I think the author's name is Andrew Nasawa okay. or Nassau. Anyway, there's a great biography um, on Andrew Carnegie's life. And I read something in that biography and that it's a fantastic story. Mm -hmm. He's a Scottish immigrant, father's a, a preacher. They're dirt poor, I think six or seven kids. He ends up starting work at around the age of 12. He's a letter courier. Mm -hmm. And uh, then he goes to work for the railroad. Then he eventually, he eventually buys a big portion of the railroad, then gets into steel manufacturing. And he decided once, he had made tons of money. Mm -hmm. um, he decided that he wanted to start giving back and making an impact through his wealth. And so he founded a bunch of libraries and uh, created Carnegie Hall, Carnegie Mellon, the, the mm -hmm. college. Um, but he, he said something in that book. He said, uh, essentially, I can't remember the quote exactly, but he said the pen is uh, much mightier than the sword, and war is essentially almost gone. So if you want to leave a legacy, mm -hmm. you need to pick up the pen. And I paid attention to that. Mm -hmm. There were some other quotes and things that, um, that I learned and heard along the way that really got me thinking about what, what's going to be around after I leave the earth? Well, it'll be things that I leave, either impressions that I leave or ways that I've helped people. But if I could create something that's lasting, like a book that has a shelf life of sometimes hundreds of years, mm -hmm. then maybe I'll be able to really help some people and scale my efforts. You know, you write a book one time and mm -hmm. essentially it can do a lot of work. Um, it's really not that easy, mm -hmm. but in theory, you write something once and it can live on and, and work without you, right? Right. So that was the idea behind it. There's also a couple other ideas. Um, I was reading a book, there's a great book called On Writing by Writing. Stephen King. Mm -hmm. And it's essentially a craft book okay. where he talks about how to think about writing, what you need to have in your toolbox. And one thing he said is authors have the ability to, um, to practice telepathy, right? And it goes back to the same thing I just said, but um, he asked the question, you know, where, what year are you in now? Because I wrote this in 1992, and I'm actually practicing telepathy with you because I wrote this in 92, and you're reading it at the time. I was reading it in 2018 or something like that. Mm -hmm. And I thought that's, that's such a powerful idea, the ability to touch people in different time spans. You know, mm. If you write about principles, my first book was about principles and truths and leadership principles and mm -hmm. that that stuff stays pretty constant so it has yeah. a great shelf life right i think that book will um will translate well into multiple decades from now okay so that first one was um a non-fiction yeah uh what's what's the second one you wrote second one i wrote is uh, it was a fiction book called the dark day in texas mm -hmm. and it's a novel about a young man named eli ridge mm -hmm. he, he was a corpsman in the navy and uh he had a couple buddies, and there was a lot of great things that happened in the military for me. I created these bonds with people that will mm -hmm. hopefully last forever. But really fun experiences, impactful experiences, and I kind of fictionalized some of that stuff and wrote it into um, a story that takes place right here where we live, the Woodlands, mm -hmm. which is a, a great area to raise a family. It's affluent. Um, there's a good readership here, I think. Mm -hmm. And so I set the the characters in the woodlands 
And um, it's about a young man who has always dreamt of becoming a police officer. Mm -hmm. And so he, once he gets over his mess of stuff, like that life chaos that I talked about, he makes a decision, okay, I'm going to become a police officer. Mm -hmm. And what he doesn't know is there's some stuff about his past that one of the wealthiest billionaires in this area is trying to keep him from finding out. Okay. And so it is a kind of a cat and mouse chase story. Um, it was a blast writing it, man. I had so much fun. Yeah? Yeah. And obviously drew a lot from your, your own experience. My own experience, um, but I mean, there's a lot in there that's not truth. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Just kind of serving as the inspiration. Yep. Um, and so now, that was A Dark Day in Texas. Right now you've got another book coming out, uh, Whitewash Tomb, and that's another Eli Ridge novel, correct? That's right. Yeah, okay. it's a sequel that takes place, I think, five or six years later. Okay. So in 2011, the end of 2011 or 2012, sometime there. Okay. So the first book takes place 2004. Mm -hmm. This one takes place 2011. So anyway, it jumps a big portion of his life, but Eli, I don't want to spoil it, but uh, he gets into the police department mm -hmm. and becomes a detective. And okay. he catches his first big murder case, okay. which um, a clue is left here in Montgomery County. Mm -hmm. And so he and his mentor, kind of senior detective, whose name is Thaddeus Preck. Um, great name. <laughs> no kidding. Uh, they're trying to solve this murder. Mm -hmm. And um, these clues are being left. And, and the book takes place in the woodlands, in Houston, in Galveston, and in Louisiana. Is there anything that kind of draws you to those roles of law enforcement? Any common themes or anything? Well, I guess this plot thickens. Because uh -huh. let me tell you the inspiration, how the inspiration for writing the fiction novel came about. Yeah. Um, I went and auditioned for this lead role in the TV series Breaking Strongholds. Mm -hmm. And part of, and I got the role after a couple weeks of auditioning, meeting with some acting coaches and thinking about it and... Uh, Anyway, part of uh, really kind of developing a character is um, knowing a backstory. Mm. And so I decided that I was just going to write the backstory of my character in Breaking Strongholds. His name is Ethan James. He's a, he's a detective in mm -hmm. Montgomery, Texas. And so I start writing this backstory out. And man, I had so much fun when I started writing that backstory. Mm -hmm. I thought, I'm just going to turn this into a novel. Okay. So that is, in fact how I got started writing novels okay. is writing the backstory for this detective. Now I split them, so mm -hmm. the characters aren't connected. Right. And the, the backstory ended up becoming a novel about a different character. Okay. But that's how the novels came about. So yeah, we're working on this TV series. It was in fact the inspiration to start writing this backstory that turned into a novel and now a sequel. So okay. it's all tied together. So it's Breaking crazy. Strongholds came first, inspired yeah. the books. All right, you've got a lot of creative pursuits going at the moment. Um, and you're also, correct me if I'm wrong, but you're also the director of marketing for Reflective Media that's producing Breaking Strong. That's right, right. yeah. Okay. So what's involved with that? Well, um, so the director of development and director of marketing. So my, okay. my roles are split between finding the money to make this show mm -hmm. and marketing the show. And okay. there's a long lead time because we film mostly on the weekends because of the way we're structured. Mm -hmm. uh, so I am building a following for the show before mm -hmm. the show is ever available. We've got four episodes filmed. Mm -hmm. We fully produced two. We're in post-production on episode three and four. Mm -hmm. Once those are done, we plan to release those as a part one okay. of season one. Okay. 
and then we'll film and post-produce um, five through eight. Okay. Awesome. Now we've improved our process now, mm -hmm. so it'll come quicker. But, right. Uh, still a lot of work to do that. Kind of finding your rhythm a little bit. Yeah. Yeah, I feel like kind of that. I guess you're not exactly crowdfunding, but it, it got me thinking about another series that's really popular right now, uh, The Chosen, which yeah. is uh, being crowdfunded. And just, I think, the potential for local productions um, in kind of that streaming online media space is just huge to tell some, I think, some really interesting stories. Oh, yeah. um, especially because you don't see a whole lot set in Houston, in Texas. Yeah. You get a lot of stuff on the coasts. Um, but not much here where I think there's a lot of great stories to be told. I think you're right. And now that this industry is being disrupted and small production companies can really produce high quality stuff because mm -hmm. of the equipment and the cost. Right. I think we're going to see a lot more um, local, independently produced television series and even feature films mm -hmm. that are going straight to video on demand through these streaming platforms. Yeah. And it's good for them because yeah, they're not absolutely. bound to big studios. Yeah, well, and it's good, I think, good for the people watching it even more because you're not just seeing this tiny little segment of America. You're actually starting to get a broader, you know, look at, you know, what this country is, what the different, you know, because each, each city, each re region has its own flavor. Yeah. Um, and you don't get a whole lot of Houston, at least. Right. Um, so, and yeah. there's, there's a reason why trends start in on the West Coast and they spread is because that's where people are getting their scripts and narratives, mm -hmm. right? They're being produced in Hollywood, essentially. Right. And they're being produced by insiders so they can control the narrative and script and they know what sells. Yeah. And so people are given the entertainment that that microcosm produces. Mm -hmm. but that's going to change. Yeah. Well, I think it's it's already starting, and I think it's just going to accelerate. So it's awesome to see, um, see you kind of on the leading edge of that. Yeah. Um, Likewise, let's huh? not forget you're <laughs> working on some pretty big projects. Oh yeah, here and there. Yeah. Um, so what's what's the uh, the future of the production? What are your goals? Um, where are y'all wanting to take it? How many you know how many seasons are you hoping to run? Um, any spinoffs or anything like that? I'm super excited about this because uh, because of the jump that we've made from episode one to episode two. Okay. It is visible. Mm -hmm. And while that's not ideal, it is actually great for the viewers mm -hmm. because episode one is good. Mm -hmm. Episode two really pulls people in. Okay. Uh, not only... F so we open up all the plot lines in episode one and then in two we really grab people and okay. raise the stakes. Right. So I do think we'll get, once people watch the pilot, they'll stick with the show. Mm -hmm. And so I think our viewership, by the time we get the show out there, our viewership, our fan base is going to have grown mm -hmm. and they're just going to eat this show up. So ideally, you know, if we could do a, 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 um, a season two, I think that'd be fantastic. I think this thing has a lot of legs and we leave a lot of open ends at the end of season one. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Awesome. Well, and you know, the more people that get involved, hopefully, the more the momentum picks up, and you know, start producing more seasons at a little bit of a faster rate. Absolutely. Um, take me back to the book that you have coming out right now, uh, Whitewashed Tomb. I just want to explore that a little bit more because I know you're doing a book launch. Uh, I think at the end of this month. Mm -hmm. um, and uh, what does that look like? I mean, as somebody who's never done anything print related, what What's involved in launching a book, getting that out? Um, 
getting people interested, getting read. I know that kind of that first initial launch stage is pretty important. Mm-hmm. Um, so yeah, tell me a little bit about that. Well, I'm, it's fortunate that I have, you know, I have a decent readership base here locally. Mm-hmm. So I've got some built-in followers um, and readers. But uh, man, anybody, let me just throw this out there as a caveat. Anybody mm-hmm. that thinks uh, if you write the book, the readers will come, mm-hmm. that's bad information. Mm-hmm. Because uh, I follow a couple authors that I admire. One of them is Michael Connolly. Okay. Every time he does an interview, um, by the way, he's probably one of the best crime drama writers. Mm-hmm. He produced a television series called Bosch. It's on Amazon Prime. Mm-hmm. It's fantastic. I studied him for Breaking Strongholds. Anyway, he openly states that half of his job, 50% of his job is writing, mm-hmm. and 50% of his job is marketing. Mm. So if you can't do marketing, and you're not willing to learn marketing, don't worry about writing a book. Um, don't mean that to break any hearts, but that's just some <laughs> practical advice. And this is coming yeah. from not an independent four-book author. Yeah. This is coming from somebody who sold 60 million, 70 million books. Wow. Yeah. Back to the launch. I think everybody should do a physical launch that mm-hmm. comes out with a book because you generate a lot of energy. Mm-hmm. Now to do one of these successfully, you got to generate a lot of interest, mm-hmm. and so you got to do marketing. Fortunately, I've got a marketing degree, and I follow some good marketers. So um, we're going to do a costume party and a book launch because it's right before Halloween. Mm-hmm. The theme of the book is a little dark, so mm-hmm. it kind of plays right into it. Um, okay. There's a lot of um, subliminal themes in the book, mm-hmm. so the whitewashed tomb theme is a has some kind of sub subliminal messaging with it mm-hmm. uh, you'll you'll understand it once you read it but okay. um, yeah so I'm excited about that and people are gonna have fun there mm-hmm. we're gonna get some good people together and uh, launch this book and so what kind of readers uh, do you write towards so it, it definitely sounds like a little bit more in kind of the the thriller crime categories is that fairly accurate suspense, suspense. crime thriller drama I would say my ideal reader is a female who likes um, who likes crime drama. Like yeah. A female that's probably thirty-five to fifty-five somewhere mm-hmm. in there, who likes the the crime thriller suspense genre. Okay. The neat thing about writing is if you've got a good imagination, you can totally get lost in a good novel mm-hmm. because you don't have all the pieces, right? You've just got what the writer has given you. So the reader constructs these vivid scenes in their mind mm. and they have fun with that you know you're almost creating the story with the author at the same time because yeah. they're providing the the plot the information but you're having to do the set dressing the locations the lighting everything that's all happening in your head yeah um, and it's a little bit different for every single person um, yeah and the good authors leave space to create that stuff you know yeah. they'll give you some some indicators like you know uh, Eli Ridge walks into the room and the first thing he notices is the bar and there's some lighting behind it but he can't mm. quite tell what's what that lighting's illuminating mm-hmm. so I just left some space right. for you to think about that maybe it's illuminating the bar mm-hmm. maybe it's illuminating a picture that has a secret compartment behind it that actually has a gun just mm. in case somebody's trying to hold the place up but he can't quite tell Mm-hmm. Eli can't the character in the book yeah so the reader gets to imagine what that is sometimes leaving information out actually tells a better story yeah 
So I think so. Awesome. Um, well, kind of bringing things back towards the beginning. Um, I mean, you've you've had a lot of different pursuits in a lot of different areas of um, you know work, creativity. Uh, you've worked in sales. You've written books. You're working in um, TV production. One of the things that kind of I, I feel like probably built a lot of that foundation was your time in the military. What are some of the lessons that you learned as a corpsman in the Navy that help you out day to day or that inform what you do day to day as an author, um, as an actor, uh, just your success in everyday life? Um, yeah. 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 Cool question. You know, you got me thinking about the way the military operates and usually you don't always get a set of instructions. Mm -hmm. You kind of get told generally speaking, hey, we need to take this hill, go figure out how to do it, right? Mm -hmm. You gotta come up with the plan and the, the strategy to do that. So a lot of the military is like that. So I think, you know, people underestimate the creativity that they have to have to get through the military and, and be successful in it. Mm -hmm. So uh, we had to figure a lot of things out in the military. Mm -hmm. And we had a lot of downtime to figure things out and, you know, do self-destructive things and all that. <laughs> But uh, back to your question, probably probably one of the neatest lessons that I learned in my time in the service happened in Iraq, mm -hmm. and um, we were we were just entering Iraq, and we were told that we were going to essentially be laid over on the side of the road in this big convoy of vehicles for like two or three days. Mm -hmm. And so here we are in the middle of a, a wartime event. We just entered this foreign country. Everybody in that in my units thinking the worst like we're gonna get ambushed and shot up mm -hmm. And so it was punishment sitting on the side of the highway mm. Waiting for two or three days So we all got antsy and uh, a buddy of mine came over his name's HM3 Rezik and I'll never forget He said hey Weaver. I got this idea. There's a village nearby mm -hmm. I don't know how he got this information and he said there's there's a you know, Iraqi women and children who need help. Why don't we do this rogue mission? We'll take our ambulance, sneak off the base, go help these people. And I thought this was the most harebrained idea in the world, but I was just stupid enough yeah. to go along with it. So we load up in our ambulance, sneak off base, go over to this village, and we start triaging these young women and children. And I, we probably spent 45 minutes passing out medication and mm -hmm assessing the situation and, and coming up with treatment plans and figuring out what, you know, who's the worst off and how we could help them the fastest. That's triage, mm -hmm. right? And uh, right about then, I see this blue pickup truck racing towards us. And I thought, oh man, this, this is gonna be bad. There was two males, Iraqi males in the cab, and they were coming at us pretty quickly. So I told my buddy Rezek, man, we, we, as corpsmen, we carried nine millimeters. Mm -hmm. So I'm like, get ready, man, this might be bad. So as they get closer, they slow down, and I realize that these guys aren't, they're not dangerous individuals. In fact, they had a look of like despair on their face. Mm. And one of the older guys in the cab got out and he kind of hobbled towards us and he lifted up his pant leg and he had this wound on his leg. So we diverted our attention to this guy because he was the worst one there. And we treated him, we gave him antibiotics right there in the middle of the desert and patched his wound up, debrided all the nasty dead skin on it. 
and spent about 40 minutes taking care of this guy. And after we were done, he stood up and he kind of hobbled towards us and he said thank you in broken English and he gave us a hug. Wow. And it was so, that moment was so powerful, man, because we went and we helped somebody who, my thinking at the time, this guy's an enemy, right? Mm -hmm. He wasn't, but that was my thinking at the time. And uh, man, he was so appreciative. That moment left a mark on my life. It's probably the most significant memory I have from the, from the military because um, we helped this guy who didn't deserve or rate our help or, you know, he, he was just some random dude that was injured that we helped out and maybe saved his life. And um, it, it did something powerful in me, man. So I always think about that and I wonder how I can make these marks in people's life. Mm -hmm or serve people or, or help them or encourage them. This morning, I just got to listen to my buddy who's just mm -hmm. gone through this traumatic experience and I just mm -hmm. got to be an ear for him and he cried. And I thought to myself, I'll remember this morning for the rest of my life. Cause I was there for this guy when he needed me the most. So trying to capture those moments more in life, man, mm -hmm. where you can really be there for people, really serve them in an impactful way. I think I can do that through writing think I can do that through acting, mm -hmm. playing these scenes out on camera. So that's what I'm focused on. And awesome. that's that's a great that's a that's a lesson that's I wouldn't I wouldn't give up for I might give it up for a couple million, but not for a million. <laughs> I think that's at least a three or four million dollar yeah. lesson right there. Yeah. Um all right, well kind of in that vein, what's what's something that you've learned in the past year, a lesson that you've learned that has changed the way that you um, work or how you, how you look at work or just look at life in general, um, the most significant thing you've learned, I guess, in the past year? You know what, I've really learned, that's a cool question, man. And I gotta go back to, I gotta go back to the way that I was raised and kind of set the stage to answer this question. Okay. I was raised in a very religious, dogmatic, religion and um, it really clouded the way I think about God mm -hmm. because I was always trying to win the approval of God in my religion and I was mm -hmm. never good enough and I was always screwing up and I was always losing my salvation and I was always begging to be back in God's good graces and that really affected the way that I see God, saw God mm -hmm. and still do. You can't get rid of that scripting especially right. when you get that early on. Now you can try to reimagine it and relearn a new way of thinking, but there's always that memory of that. Mm -hmm. And it was very toxic and damaging to me, and I think that's why we have so many people that despise religion, mm -hmm. is because they're just given this terrible, terrible message. Right. And so, um, not seeing things black and white Mm -hmm. And and leaving some gray area in in my interpretation of humanity and my interpretation of God, and that's been crucial. And so, I saw a writer that I really like uh, insert some messaging in his writing and in his show. And this is very small. I don't know if it's significant, but I caught it. Mm -hmm. And I think that every word that this writer writes is purposeful. And these are very impactful things. For example, let me give you something specific. There's a line in there 
in his writing that says, Jesus wept. Now, mm-hmm. this is a, a crime drama writer, but you know where that comes from. Mm-hmm. It's one of the shortest, it is the shortest line of scripture in the Bible. Jesus wept. Comes out of the book of John, uh, just after Lazarus died. Mm-hmm. But he inserted that in his writing, totally out of place. And it was just this subliminal message that you can, you can write things into your script or your movie that really catches people and gets them thinking. Mm. And man, if you can make people think, well, you can do all kinds of things. So um, learning to see gray area in life and humanity and use it creatively, like that's something that I want to do. Mm-hmm. That's something I want to do. I want to make people think. I want to encourage people. I want to try to break people out of the black and white thinking because in black and white thinking, you're either right or wrong, and there's no right. middle ground. And if we don't have middle ground in this country or in this world, mm-hmm. we're always going to be at odds. Yeah. Well, I feel like it can sometimes be a more challenging endeavor and a more creative endeavor to get people to ask questions rather than just give them the answers. It can be easy to give people answers. You can tell people what they should be doing all day long. But to get people thinking and asking the questions and then not leading them in any particular direction, just getting them to think. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's something I think truly special. That's been a powerful lesson, recent lesson that I'm trying to use. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's great. Mm-hmm. What's something, doesn't have to be in the past year, it can be any time, but what's a failure that you've experienced? Something where you were either trying to do something or not trying to do something, you, at least at the time, fa- what, what you thought was a failure yeah. um, that has set you up for success now or later in life, um, you know, that your perspective on it may be changed later on. Mm. Man, I go back to kind of my biggest obstacle that I had to overcome. Mm-hmm. And Eli Ridge deals with this in the book. Okay. Uh, but when I came back from Iraq, man, and even before I got out of the military, I was a big time drinker. Mm. And I thought I was just having a good time. Right. And the problem with drinking a lot is it clouds your mind, mm-hmm. your perception, messes up your relationship. Excuse your thinking. And uh, I thought I had kind of maintained control of the drinking mm-hmm. issue, but man, it had a hold on me. Mm-hmm. So I, I maintained my my party attitude about drinking um, until about 2013. And I mean, I'm telling you, there were times where my wife would come in the the bathroom and I'd be passed out in the closet from the night before. Mm-hmm. And uh, she would, you know, she knew what was going on, of course. And I would try to play that off like, well, I just, uh, you know, I was just really tired. It was a joke. Mm-hmm. It was a joke of an excuse to try to play something like that off. And, yeah. And an insult on her intelligence. And I was really in denial about how bad this got. So, mm-hmm. I, I mean, I was a, I mean, I was a, I, th- there's a saying um, where, uh, 30 drinks is never enough, mm-hmm. but one's too much. And that's mm. what it was like for me. Once I got going, I couldn't turn it off. Right. So um, I almost blew up my entire family 
wow. by drinking. Mm -hmm. And I'm telling you, um, the only way I was able to stop is just surrendering to God. I had tried everything else. Mm -hmm. I'd tried everything else. My, my, I, I could not muster the will to stop drinking mm -hmm. on my own. I'd tried for years. I swore it off a hundred times. Mm -hmm. But finally I had to come to terms with reality and, and I was uh, just a drinking monster. Mm -hmm. And I had to just stop. And to be able to do that, I had to ask God for help. And so um, I'd almost blown up my family. I asked for one more chance. My wife gave it to me. And that started a healing process back in 2013 where mm -hmm. I, had a lot of, I had a lot of wounds to go back and work through and heal in my family and me. Um, but, you know, through God's strength, I was able to overcome that. I did start off... Um, in AA. So mm -hmm. I'd go to AA meetings and uh, getting help from people who'd been further along in their sobriety process than me. That was very encouraging. A lot mm -hmm. of wise people in AA. And uh, But eventually I um, moved out and just my faith has, has helped me stay sober. Mm -hmm. And so um, learning from that, like learning, the major lesson there is it's not a weakness to ask for help. It's a strength. Mm -hmm. And I just thought I could muscle through this thing because I had the type of personality when I come up against an obstacle, I could, I barrel through it. Mm -hmm. And whether that's a good obstacle or a bad obstacle, you know, I did that with school. I just got in there and I did it and I, you know, excelled. But there's some things you got to ask for help on. Mm -hmm. And and some of those tough challenges, that's why that's why we have other people is yeah. to help us through those challenges. So I think the big failure was not realizing that asking for help was something that I had to do or that, that, that idol of drinking would have buried me. It would have mm. messed up my family, which would have destroyed me Yeah. eventually. Well, that, that kind of blew my other question out of the water. I was going to ask, what's a lesson that you, you learn, you've learned that you wish you had learned earlier in life? I feel like that's probably one of them, um, asking for help. Yeah, you know, uh, another big one is uh, um, th this will hopefully help some people, but um, if you want to get to know, if, I had to get to know God personally mm -hmm. to really develop a relationship. I mean, this seems obvious, right? If I want to develop a relationship with you, I can't go to your wife and say, hey, mm -hmm. help me grow closer to Jonathan. You know? Right. Um, I got to go to you and find out about you and learn about you and read about you and hang out with you, spend time with you. So before I realized this, I was getting my relationship with God from a guy on a stage at a church that's full of broken people just like me, mm -hmm. right? The pastors are broken. The saints are broken. Everybody's broken. Right. But until I started going to God and, and asking him for help and asking to get to know him and uh, researching him, um, you know, I didn't have the relationship that I have now. So uh, that was a pretty valuable lesson, man. Maybe one of the most valuable ever, yeah. you know? It's a good one to learn earlier. Yeah. Sooner than later. But better late than never. Yes. For sure. Yeah. Well, um, is there anything I'm not asking you? Anything that, uh, I guess, is a significant experience, a significant lesson or... I will say that um, people who are being challenged maybe with 
an addiction or mm -hmm. a crisis of faith or anything. You know, they just feel stuck. I just, I want to encourage people that you can redeem time, you know. You can redeem time in relationships. You can redeem time in your professional career. You can redeem time in hobbies. You know, if you really kick yourself into gear mm -hmm. and focus, you can get a lot done in a little amount of time. So I, I often run into people that are like, you know, when they find out that I write books, the first thing out of their mouth is, I can never do that. Mm. And that's the, that's the self-defeatist mentality. And it happens so often. And yeah. I'm like, the, my first response is, yeah, you can. If you just make a decision to do it and then come up with a plan, you can do it. Mm -hmm. And uh, they always think twice when I say that because I say it with conviction, you know. I'm yeah. no different than you. Once I decided to do it, I came up with a plan. I sat down for three months straight and I worked five days a week for a couple hours a day mm -hmm. and the book was there, right? Yeah. It wasn't, there was nothing magical about that. There was no fairy. You know, some people talk about this uh, creative spirit that has to come, come upon you. Mm -hmm. I'm not sure, man. Yeah. I, think, I think it comes down to discipline and, you know, making a decision you're going to do something creative. And there's this cool quote that I shared with you before. Um, but it comes from a guy, a German guy. Uh, I wish I could remember his name. But he says that uh, when we're creating, we're most like God. Mm. Or vice versa. We're most like God when we're creating. Mm -hmm. God's the ultimate creator. We're most like him when we're creating. I think that's, there's something to that. Yeah. I don't know if it's spot on, but I think there's something to it. No, I think that's true because i never feel as energized as alive as just satisfied with life as i am when i'm making something creating something whether yeah. that's shooting a video or playing a piece of music or you know making a piece of furniture it's i think that creative spirit and you know writing a book i think it's probably the most human Thing that we can do um, and if you know if we're made in the image of God if that's the most human thing we can do then I think that's probably one of the one of the ways that we can be closest to God is by creating yeah, using it, that spirit he gave us yeah it it, it, uh, it enlivens you and once you get a feel for it you mm -hmm. want more yeah and so it can really once you do something creative it can drive more creative things Mm -hmm. And um, I think, man, look at, look at history and look at the, the people who have changed culture, like mm -hmm. these artists like Michelangelo and Da Vinci. And, and uh, I've written about some of these characters. Um, they, they, didn't, they didn't have this innate genius. Now, mm -hmm. I think they were gifted, but man, they really worked at their craft. Oh, yeah. If you read Da Vinci's... Uh, or, or Michelangelo's biographies, they really worked at their craft. They studied, they, they, they were understudies. Mm -hmm. They were some of the greats. And man, they worked hard and they made a huge impact in culture. So. Yeah. No, more, more and more as I study about creativity, because I do a lot of reading on that, trying to figure out you know, how to be more creative. And it's just about from the most successful people in their different fields that I've read, the, the most consistent thing is you can't wait for inspiration. You can't yeah. just wait for that spirit of creativity to hit you. The, the only thing you can do is, is start, you know, do it, 
every day and just keep doing it and have the discipline to do it. And eventually, you know, you'll probably make a lot of bad work, but eventually you'll make something good. Um, yeah, if there yeah. is somebody out there that's in this creative endeavor and mm -hmm. they need some help, like they feel stuck, yeah. there's, a, there's a resource that I would recommend. Um, and I, I recommend this book more than any other book. Okay. And it's called uh, The War of Art. Not The, the Art war of art. War, but The War of Art. And it's mm. by a former Marine. I shouldn't say former. Um, mm. it's, it's, uh, his name is Stephen Pressfield. Okay. And uh, it, it helped me get through a couple books. Mm -hmm. It's just like a, it, it, I especially love the audiobook, but after getting the audiobook, I bought the book. Okay. Uh, but I've probably listened to that audiobook 20 or 30 times. Oh, wow. I don't agree with everything, but mm -hmm. the majority of it, man, is just, it just helps you muscle through things. Yeah. And it's the kind of, he, he teaches you the mentality to get into, to be able to do creative things. Mm -hmm. You got to feel like you're going to war. Yeah. You got to battle against laziness and, mm -hmm. you know, the weather. And the, the crying baby. <laughs> That's a big one right wife, now. Yeah. You know, you got to battle against all that if you're going to do something creative because yeah. creativity is hard. So The War of Art by Stephen Pressfield. Yeah. I okay. would recommend that for anybody that's... I'm glad that's on audiobook because that's probably the only way I'm going to read it right now. Yeah. But uh, yeah, I'll check that out. Yeah. Um, How about for you? Any nuggets that you've learned recently about creativity? Because I'd love to hear those. Uh, I think the biggest one, and we were talking about this the other day... Um, the creativity faucet is one that I'm really trying to lean into. And I can't remember who it is exactly. I'll have to, to look this up. Um, that uh, wrote, wrote it out specifically as the creativity faucet. But the idea that, you know, there is no spirit of creativity or muse or special divine revelation that's going to, you know, get you started on your creative project. There's everybody's got a faucet. Mm -hmm. and all of their creative ideas are backed up in the, the pipe. And there's a mile of sludge in that pipe that you've got to get through. And the only way to get through it is by turning on the faucet and letting all that sludge come out. And you've got to get all your bad ideas out before you can start to get to the good ideas, to the clean water that's you know backed up behind that. Mm -hmm. And the only way to get that out is to just create, you know, whether that's writing or making videos or writing music, um, building furniture, you know, whatever it is, the only way you're gonna get through those bad ideas is by doing the work. Right. And so that kind of has helped me a lot recently, and that's part of the reason why I'm doing this uh, conversational interview format, is it something that I can do repeatedly, just doing the work every day, not waiting you know, for the inspiration, for the, you know, the perfect idea to come along, because it's never going to come along. That's right. Um, it's only going to come from that discipline and that repeated, consistent effort. Mm -hmm. um, so that's something that I'm really trying to lean into right now. It's yeah. just, you know, whether I feel it or not, make something. And the cool thing is, so. is we've got access to the greats, right? Yeah. We've got access to the best training. Mm-hmm. It's all out there. It's all accessible. It doesn't yeah. cost a lot. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can take a master class from some of the greatest writers or actors or directors or producers for a couple hundred bucks and, and yeah. learn directly from the masters. Well, and you can find a lot of it for free. I mean, there's, there's so much. I listen to a ton of podcasts. Right. There's so much information out there that's completely free. 
And then if you want to dive in deeper, then you can, you know, usually find some kind of course or something that people have put out there. But really the only limiting factor is, you know, yourself. How much, how, how willing are you to go out there and look for the information? Yeah. Um, yeah, it's a great time to be alive. Yeah, and what do you think about uh, having a creative circle? We started one of those recently. I think that's incredibly important because, um, well, I, I don't want to speak for all creative people, but at least for myself, I can get very um, myopic and kind of constrained in my thinking when I'm working just on my own. And I do a lot of one-man band work, a lot of the video shoots that I do. I'm doing the lighting, the audio, the camera work, the editing, all myself. Um, but you really lose out on, I think, just kind of this cool creative dance that happens when you're working with other people who have different strengths and weaknesses than you. Um, and just remembering how much other people can bring to the table that, you know, helps you, that challenges you. Um, so, yeah, I think it's absolutely critical for people to have a creative community. Um, yeah. And it's not hard to start. Right. No, it's, you just got to find somebody that's willing to, I mean, it can, it can start out as simple as, I think, asking somebody to come critique your work. Say, hey, how, how could I improve this? Um, and, hey, let's, let's come up with some ideas together. Um, and so I think, you know, we, we've started a, a local kind of community of creatives here in the Woodlands. Uh, I'd love to see that expand. Um, I'd love for other people to do that, you know, with creatives in, in their area, just get together with, doesn't even have to be like-minded people, just people who want to make something mm -hmm. um, and yeah. work together. Yeah, and just, just an idea for people who think this is a good idea. Mm -hmm. I mean, we came together and our second meeting, second or third meeting, we each, there's four of us in that group, and we came up with an idea that we wanted mm -hmm. to film. And we tossed it in a hat and we pulled one out at random, mm -hmm. right? And we, before we pulled, we said, okay, whatever comes out, we're gonna go all in and help. It's like maybe a day or two project. We'll film it over a weekend. Mm -hmm. And just do this for the sake of creativity. Yeah. And what did we pull out? Uh, pulled out an idea for a whiskey commercial. So <laughs> yeah. that's what we're making. That's right. Um, and I think Ricky sent over the script this morning. So we've got a script to start working from. And I think we're going to shoot, I can't remember what day, but early November. Yeah. So, um, and I think that's important too. Sometimes setting, setting constraints, setting limits on it. Saying, hey, we have to be able to shoot this in two days max. You know, we can't let ourselves get too complicated and it's got to be done by this time. Sometimes people think creativity has to be totally open-ended and have, you know, you got to be able to go any way you want. You need to have freedom. But sometimes creativity, in fact, I think all the time, creativity flourishes within constraints. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, putting that deadline on it, it's going to force us to actually do it and not let that sit stagnant. So, yeah. So that's a good idea to anybody that's, doing creative stuff, put some, put some constraints on yourself, put some deadlines, get it done. Totally. So, cool. Well, I think that's, that's all I've got. Um, anything else you want to talk about? Anything you want to add or? No, be creative, no. man. Get out there and make something. Absolutely. Try to change the world. Well, thanks for Thank joining you. me today. And, uh, you know, you're the, the first of hopefully many, um, kind of get to set the tone and the, the feeling for the first episode of whatever we're calling this yeah. crazy thing. Honored so. to go first, man. Thank you for inviting me. Thanks for joining. Hopefully it helps and inspires many people. Yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm.
Thank you.